Good morning, Gateway family. It's a privilege to be able to gather this morning, both here in the sanctuary and for those of you who are joining us at home, also those who are over in the gym. We want to welcome you all to Gateway, and we're just grateful to be able to come and to worship together this morning, and it's such a privilege to be able to do so. We want to continue to remind you that this will be our schedule for the next several weeks, where we will not be having Sunday school, and we'll start worship at 10.30. Please uh, stay alert to your emails and the website and the blog and uh, social media as well, where we'll try to keep you posted with as many regular updates as possible as we have those available to you. Also, we want to continue to remind everyone, even though we are not gathering regularly together, that we would encourage you to maintain consistent relationships with those who are in the body. And there's multiple ways to do that, but you can certainly connect with us through the blog and find all of the different small groups that are continuing to meet, whether that be in uh, homes or uh, and in person, or whether that just be through the internet, through a format like Zoom, we would encourage you to be aware of all of the opportunities to connect in relationship and to be plugged in. Also, uh, as we're not passing the plate together because um, of the COVID issues, we would encourage everyone to continue to be aware that you are able to give online at gatewaybaptist.com. And also, if you are physically present on campus, there is a box at the back of the sanctuary and also a box in the lobby at the gym. You're uh, welcome to give those ways as well as to mail in. And we just appreciate everyone's generosity and faithfulness even during this recent season. Also, if you are part of the student ministry, you would have received recently a schedule that shows you all of the different places that we are meeting together each Wednesday night. This week, the Moody's are hosting and Jeff will be teaching. If you have any questions about the weekly schedule, you can reach out to me and I'll get you a copy of that. And continue to be aware of our summer camp coming up June the 13th through, or excuse me, July 13th through 17th down at Laguna Beach outside of Panama City. And if you need any further details on that, again, you can find that at the blog or you can reach out to me directly and I'll get you any information that might be helpful to you. Let's stand together this morning. We're going to read our call to worship from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's sing together this morning, God is for us.
section of James, one particular teaching in James's emphasis. It started back two weeks ago with James chapter 2, verse 14, where he told us, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer was no. If you remember where we saw that week, that faith that does not transform us is useless. Or in James's word, it's dead. A faith that does not change us is dead. It cannot save us. It cannot lead us to God and lead us to heaven. But this is not just a philosophical idea here. This is a very real warning for us. James tells many people then and now are deceived in thinking they're okay with God when they're not. So James chapter 2, verse 20 that we saw last week, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's a strong warning. He showed us it's foolish to base our assurance of salvation simply on a profession of faith. To think we're okay with God because I've prayed a prayer, I've joined the church, I've done some particular thing. Because we keep seeing this theme all throughout Scripture. When we studied John, we saw it. When we studied Ephesians, we saw it. Now in James, we saw it. That theme is that true faith transforms us. True faith will change us. But our big question this morning is how? How does true faith change us? How does true faith transform us? Now, I've mentioned several things in passing along the way, but we're going to go deeper on that topic this morning of how our faith 
changes us. And to do that, we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 21 to 26. Yes, we're going to look at six verses this morning. And no, don't panic. We're going to still get through in our normal time. But we're going to look at six verses from James's letter this morning. James is concluding his teaching on faith and works. He's doing so with two real-life examples. As you go back to the Old Testament, show us two historical figures to help us understand how faith and works go together, to show us how faith changes us. So as we read our text this morning, be looking for these examples of Abraham and Rahab and looking for how did their faith change them. So with that in view, can I ask you to stand, please, if you're able, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. James chapter 2, verses 21 to 26, and I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your unchanging word. We thank you that you've not hidden yourself from us, but God, you've revealed yourself to us and shown us who you are. God, I pray this morning your word would come alive to us. Help us understand what James is saying here, what you're saying to us. I pray it would transform us, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One thing I want you to see from this text this morning as we answer the question of how does faith change us is simply this. True faith leads us to embrace costly obedience and costly service. How does our faith change us? It leads us to embrace costly obedience as well as costly service. We see that in our text this morning, we'll look at in just a minute, that James is going to point back to Abraham to show us that one change we have if we really believe in God is that it will lead us to embrace gladly a costly obedience, a willingness to obey, obey God even when it's hard. And James is going to point us back to the example of Rahab, a very different figure, to show us another change from true faith is a willingness to embrace costly service, a willingness to serve others even when it is difficult. True faith leads us to embrace costly obedience and costly service. Now, before we get into these two examples, let's look at the idea of true faith or real faith. We've been on this theme for several weeks, and it wraps up this morning. James is summarizing this idea of faith and works, and so he's going to give us one more insight again today into what true faith really is. And so really the key verse of this text this morning is verse number 24. He says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He says, you see, this is plural. If you remember last week, he was responding to an objector who disagreed with him. Now he broadens this out into the plural. You see, if you're reading this, if you're in the audience, if you're in the early church right now, he's addressing all of us right now to make sure all of his readers understand what he's saying, that we are justified by works. In fact, he puts works in the place of emphasis. If he's writing in English, he might put works in all caps here. But he begins the sentence with the word works. So in Greek, it would literally read, you see that by works, picture that in all caps, one is justified. Now, as we said before, friends, this sounds problematic to us because we see all throughout Scripture that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. All throughout the Scripture, we're told that our works cannot get us to God. So what is James saying when he says that we're justified by our works? This is where it's so important to understand the word usage here. When James uses the word justification, he uses it very differently than Paul uses it in his writings, particularly in Romans. And we do that in English, don't we? We have words that we use in different ways in different settings. When Paul speaks about being justified, he's using the legal sense of the word, where God is declaring us righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. 
when Paul speaks of justification, he's talking about our change in our standing before God simply because of what God has done, not because of anything we've done. But James writes long before Paul wrote, and when James wrote, he used justification here in the more common everyday way of the Greek culture at the time. In that, in that sense of the word justify, it means to vindicate, to prove, to demonstrate that something is true. And we still use that word, don't we? You hear people say, oh, he was not justified in acting that way. I think he was justified in making that decision. That's the sense of justification that James is using here as he writes. And as, as we saw before, though, not only is the word justification used differently between James and Paul, so is the word works. When Paul shows us in Romans that our works cannot get us to God, he's speaking of pre-conversion works, works to, that we, people try to do to try to earn God's favor. And he rightfully shows us our works cannot get us to God. But when James speaks of works, he's speaking of works that come after we place our faith in Christ. You might call those post-conversion works, things you do not to get to God, but because God has already changed us. And to help us see that James is not contradicting Paul here, he gives us a very important clarification. Look at verse 23. shows that faith alone is all that can save us. He points the example of Abraham. In verse 23, he says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend from God. James goes back and quotes from Genesis chapter 15 to show us that Abraham believed. Abraham trusted in God, and because of that belief, not because of any additional works that Abraham did, God gave him the gift of righteousness. What's so important is this quote from Genesis 15 happened before the law was given. Before Abraham had believed or had done good works or not, this was simply God's grace gift to Abraham. But because God gave him this grace gift, it changed him, it transformed him, not just legally, but even relationally. Notice this cool phrase here in verse 23. He was called a friend of God. Let that sink in, friends, that if we have been justified by God, if he has changed our status before him and changed our nature, he now calls us his friend, a close acquaintance, one who's intimate with the Lord. All this is God's grace. If we believe, it is all of God's grace. So what then is the role of works? If Paul and James are speaking works differently, what is the role of works? Well, I found a helpful diagram studying this weekend. I want you to see it on the screen this morning because it kind of helps summarize what all we've been talking about all along the way. And this is hopefully will help you. It's helped me thinking through this week. Some people believe that your works lead to salvation. And that's not true. Paul, as we've seen in recent weeks when I've quoted from Romans 3 and other texts, that simply is not the case. There's nothing you and I as sinners can do to get to God to earn God's favor because of anything we have done. All we bring to God is our sin. All we deserve is condemnation, but God in his grace gives us salvation. So our works do not lead to salvation. But there are some people who think that if I have faith, but I also have to do good along with my faith to get to God. That my salvation comes because I believe in Jesus, but also because I need to be baptized. I need to take communion. I need to go to church. I need to do certain things. Faith plus works. But that doesn't lead to salvation either, friends. That cheapens grace. That cheapens the cross. Because then somehow the cross is not enough. If faith plus works equals salvation, then what Jesus did is insufficient, and we have to add to it. So that's not right. Perhaps the more common view in our culture, in evangelical Christianity, is that my faith leads to salvation. I believe, therefore I'm saved. And that's getting closer, but that's still not what the Scripture teaches. Because faith does lead to salvation, but as you see in that last line there, true faith leads to salvation, and it changes us. It transforms us. Our works don't get us to God, but if we really do have true faith, it is going to not only gain a salvation and a change in standing before God, it's going to change our very nature. Where there is true faith, God has declared us righteous, not because of anything we have done. He's justified us in the legal sense of the word. But where there's true faith, God has also given us a new heart, a new nature, a heart that loves him and a heart that wants to walk with him. 
Therefore, that type of faith is justified. It is demonstrated in the way that Paul or that James uses justification to show that God really has transformed us. And that's exactly what James is saying. Look back at verse number 22. He says that you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Now, notice the two things he says here, that faith was completed by his works. The word that we translate here, completed, in the Greek is the same word from James chapter 1, verse 4, that gets translated perfection and completion. It's the idea of maturity. Remember James 1? They were considered joy in the trials because the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance has its full effect so you can be mature and complete. Now, that word mature and complete is the exact same word you see right here. His faith was matured and completed. His faith was perfected and matured by his works. Friends, our works do not save us, but our works mature us. Our works grow us in our trust in God and in our godliness. He also says here in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. Literally, his faith was working alongside his works. True faith works itself out in daily life. We want a key idea of verse 22 is simply that, that true faith works itself out in our daily lives. If we have true faith, it will impact our daily lives, and it will keep on impacting. In the Greek here, that tense is an imperfect tense. That means it keeps on happening, that our faith works and keeps on working along with our works. Our works keep on working along with our faith, that day by day our faith is being lived out in our daily life. So back to the big question, how then does true faith change us? How then does true faith transform us and work itself out in our lives? And of all the examples and ways you can think about, there's really just two big categories. True faith leads us to costly obedience, and true faith will lead us to costly service. And just about anything you can imagine of how true faith changes us will fall under one of those two categories. First of all, true faith leads us to embrace costly obedience. Look at the example of Abraham here, verse number number 21 here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Again, he's saying, was not Abraham our father? Was not his faith vindicated? Was not his faith proven by what he did? And his faith was so real, he was going to act on it. And what was he going to act on there in verse 21? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. That Abraham was willing to obey something that is as hard as anything we could ever imagine being asked by God to do. What's in reference here goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, and I'll have that up on the screen for you if you want to follow along there. In Genesis chapter 22, here's what it's referencing. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. That's a shocking command that God tells Abraham, take your son, the promised son, the one that I told you I blessed the whole earth with, the one that I told you that all the nations would come, would be blessed through him. The one who you will become a great nation through. God takes, says, take this one I promised you. The son I gave you supernaturally in your old age and sacrifice him on the mountain. And as shocking as the command is, friends, it's even more shocking in some ways that Abraham has such faith he's willing to obey. Look at verses 3 and 4. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. How could Abraham do that? How could Abraham be willing to sacrifice the son that God had told him would be the one through whom the nations would be blessed? Because Abraham had faith that God would keep his promises. And his faith was so real and he was so confident in God's promises. Look at verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, 
stay here with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And notice this, this is plural. We will come again to you. He was so confident that if he obeyed God at this radical command to sacrifice his son, that God could raise his son back to life because he knew that God would keep his promises. And so from the rest of the account that we're not going to read this morning, you can read it later in the rest of Genesis 22, Isaac goes along. We talk about real faith there in the son as well. And you see him getting to this point. And then verse 11 here, you see the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And James says that, friends, is real faith. That is an example of faith that is intellectual. Abraham knew who God was. He believed the truths of who God was. It was a faith that was a profession. Abraham was public that he was a follower of God, but it was a faith that didn't stop with just knowledge, didn't stop with just a profession. It was a faith that led him to obey God, to change his life, even when it didn't make sense to him. True faith, James is saying, leads one to costly obedience. There's a second thing we have in the examples here, that true faith leads us not just to costly obedience, but true faith leads us to costly service as well. And that's the example of Rahab here. Go back to James 2 and look at verse number 25. James tells us here, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified. Again, was not her faith vindicated? Was her faith not proven? Was her faith not shown to be real by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So here Rahab is said, he's saying she had such a transforming faith, she was willing to act on it and to serve others. Now this reference goes back to Joshua chapter 2. And in Joshua chapter 2, flip back over there to it, you can see it follow along on the screen. This is where God's people had come out of slavery, and God had taken them to the land he had promised, but they did not believe God. So they had to wander for 40 years. But God raised up Joshua and prepares them to take the land that he had promised them. But it was not going to be easy because the land was already occupied. So Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, they come to one of the early places they would have to take to get the land that God had promised. Joshua 2, 1, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, the spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And when they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So Joshua, the leader of Israel, sends these spies to the land to see what it's going to take to take Jericho, to take the land that God had promised to them. And they stay in the house of a prostitute. I know that seems strange to us, but it makes sense when you look at it historically. Her house was on the city wall. It was the easiest one for a spy to get to. But also she had many foreigners who would come and go, the scholars say. So it would not have aroused as much suspicion with them being there to see what it would take for God's people to take the land that God was giving to them. Somehow their cover gets blown in. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, you see, it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Now, if you're Rahab, what would you do? You have these spies from another country that want to invade you there at your house. The king comes to you and says, I know they're here. What are you going to do? She has an opportunity to give the spies over. She would become the national hero. She would have saved her people. And she could easily have ris- risen to fame and prominence. She could have followed the, the king of her own city. But instead, she offered costly service to God and to God's people. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where they, the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So she hid them. Why would she do that? Why would an immoral woman betray her own city 
to do this thing of service to God and his people. As best we can tell, it's because she had begun to believe. She already had transforming faith. It was working itself out in a willingness to cost herself everything to serve others. Look at verse 9. This is incredible, the declaration that she makes to these spies, these Israelites on her roof. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. But notice this, verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, now notice this declaration. This is what Rahab is saying. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That Rahab has heard through the people coming through her house about this God of the Israelites who would part the Red Sea, who would lead his people, who would give them favor and give them victory. And with her own mouth now, she has got a primitive faith, a seedling faith, where she, she proclaims he is God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath. And so she's willing to risk her own life to do what would be costly to serve God and his people. And James says, friends, that is faith. That is real faith. A faith that's intellectual. She now believes in the God of Israelites. A faith that's a profession. That verse 11 is a, quite a profession. He is God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. But a faith that goes beyond intellect, a faith that goes beyond profession to change her life where she was willing to risk herself and give up potentially everything to serve others and to serve God's people. James is saying true faith leads to embrace costly service. Now, why these two examples, friends? You couldn't get much more of a contrast, could you, between two Old Testament examples of Abraham and Rahab. One's a man, one's a woman. One is wealthy, one is poor. One is the father of the Jewish nation, one is an outcast, outcast of Canaanite society. One is a major figure in history, one is a minor figure in history. One is considered upright in the society, one is considered immoral. Why in the world would James pick two people of such starkly contrasting things in almost every single way? Well, he was using a literary device. If you want the fun word for it, it's called a marismus. I'm sure that'll be a fun word to use at the water cooler this week at your office, right? But it's called a marismus. It was a literary device at the time where you pick the most extreme two examples you can think of to show that everyone else falls between them. You pick a man and a woman. You pick someone rich and someone poor. You pick someone who's upright and someone who's a prostitute. You pick someone who's a major figure and someone who's a minor figure. You pick an Israelite. You pick a Canaanite. And you get this contrasting example to say, if you are anywhere in between these, you're included in what I'm teaching you. He's saying it doesn't matter if you have faith as strong as Abraham or faith as beginning seedling form as Rahab. It doesn't matter if people think of you as upright or people think of you as immoral. If you're anywhere between Abraham and Rahab, you're in this scope of what James is trying to teach us here. Because that means every single one of us is in the scope of what James is teaching too. He's saying to us, it doesn't matter where you stand in this, but if you really believe, whether you're Abraham or Rahab, if you really believe, it will lead to transformation in your daily life. It will lead you to want to obey God. It will lead you to want to serve others. And friends, this is not just some nice theological truth. This is a test of true faith for us to ask ourselves, just like James is confronting his early readers with. So I want to ask you this morning, friends, if true faith leads us to embrace costly obedience, the words of James from James 2 that we already saw, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. If faith, true faith, leads us to embrace costly obedience, friends, how is your faith leading you to obey God? How is your faith leading you to obey God even when it is hard? See, God has given us his written word, the clear revelation of his will. He's told us what to do, and he's told us what not to do. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, 
you're here or if you're at home watching, doesn't matter. Is your faith giving you a desire to obey God? Is your faith producing in you, by God's grace, a desire to follow God and to give up those cherished sins that we can so easily cling to? Is your faith producing in you a growth and godliness where strongholds of the past are falling away by the grace of God because of the new nature he's put within you, because he's given you the Holy Spirit within you? Friends, or are we trying to justify remaining in our sins? Just remind us from Scripture, there's sins of omission, but also sins of commission. So often we only think of the sins of omission. Are we justifying things in our life, whether it's anger, whether it's some type of sexual immorality, whether it's lying or deceit or pornography or adultery or whatever else? Are we justifying those things? Or is the grace of God leading us to a place to put those off by his strength? Remember, there's also sins of of omission as well, where we do not do what God has called us to do. Is the grace of God he's given us in true faith leading us to want to pursue God more? He calls us to pursue him in his word and to pray and to use our spiritual gifts and to share our faith with others and to love our spouses and disciple our kids and to put on Christ-like attitudes and to work hard unto the Lord. And there's some area where God has told us to do something that we're not doing and we're clinging to that sin as well. So our, our first question for the morning's friends is simply, is our faith real? If so, how is it leading us to obey God? Friends, how does it need us? How should it lead us to obey God this week? So some area where real faith is calling us to put off some sin, to put on some Christ-like attitude. And I hope you'll think on that this week. But James also says true faith leads us to embrace costly service. It leads us to serve others. So I want to ask you the second question this morning. How is your faith leading you to serve others? How is your faith and my faith leading us to serve others? other people. Now, friends, this doesn't require us to have some official role in the church. It doesn't require us to be part of some ministry organization. It doesn't require us having some title. How is your faith leading you to serve your spouse? How's it leading you to serve your kids? How's it leading you to serve your neighbors, your friends in need, the stranger at the grocery store, some other brother and sister in the body of Christ here at Gateway who's struggling and hurting right now? How is your faith leading you to serve others? Not just doing what we naturally do, not just what seems fun, but how is it leading us to sacrifice, to give of our time, our money, our energy, our things, our space, our downtime, our hobbies, to care for others, to step out of our comfort zones to do what God has called us to do. So friends, is our faith real? And if so, how is it leading us to serve others? And is there some way it needs to lead us this week to serve others? True faith leads us, friends, to embrace costly obedience and costly service. And in light of that, James closes with a warning here for us. Go back to verse 26. It says, As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He says, if your faith is not giving you a desire to obey God, if your faith is not giving you a desire to serve others, you need to go back and go, is it real faith, or am I deceiving myself and thinking I am okay with God? In light of that, friends, I want to close this morning with a quote. I shared it a few weeks ago one I've been chewing on, so it's one I want to encourage you to think on as well. I want you to think about what we've seen in light of this. This guy says, many people accept the biblical diagnosis of the human condition. They understand how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection remedy their estrangement from God. They go to church from time to time. They like to read and talk about spiritual things. They know the central teachings of the Christian faith. They are pleasant folks. They seem to, they seem to live decent lives, so they may indulge in a vice or two. When conversation turns to Jesus or what happens after death, they sound like believers. They adhere to orthodox evangelical theology, yet there is nothing distinctly Christian about their behavior. 
Yet there's nothing distinctly Christian about their behavior. They may be decent neighbors and may perform a little community service, but notice this, but there's no real self-sacrifice, no costly obedience, no good deed that goes against their grain, nothing that challenges their well-designed life. So friends, the question for me and the question for you this morning is simply this. Is our faith so real as challenging our well-designed life? Is our faith so real as challenging our well-designed life and leading us to obey God in those things that we really don't want to obey God in? Things he's told us to give up and things he's told us to do. Is our faith so real it's going to push against the grain of our nature and lead us to a place of going, Lord, you are not just my Savior, you're my Lord. Please help me obey you in all these things. Is our faith so challenging our well-designed life that's going to lead us to embrace costly service? To step out and do those things that aren't necessarily fun for us or things that by our nature we would do to serve others in need, to seek to advance God's purposes. Is our faith changing us in those ways? Would you pray with me, friends? Father, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful for what we've been seeing in James of how true faith does transform us. Lord, for these precious brothers and sisters who I've seen the fruit of their faith, I pray you would encourage them today in your grace. Encourage them that what you've done in granting to them true saving faith. Encourage them at what you have done for them. And I pray they would realize this all of you and that you would give their hearts a stirring to want more of your grace. Lord, for all of us who profess to be followers of Christ, Lord, would you show us areas of our life where we're not obeying you like we should? Lord, we confess we all have blind spots. We all have areas that are hard to overcome. So, Lord, for myself and these precious brothers and sisters, I pray that this week will be a week we would experience your grace afresh, that your Holy Spirit dwelling within us will convict us of those blind spots, convict us of those sins, and if there's sins that we've been struggling with, that we've been clinging to, that we've been justifying in our mind, that, God, you would give grace upon grace this week for us to cry out, Lord, help. Lord, forgive us. That we would step out in obedience and obey you in those hard things that you've called us to do, whatever that might be. Lord, as well, I pray that you would be stirring our hearts with a faith that's so real that, God, that we see the needs of others. But all around us in this church body and among other believers in the community and the community at large are people who are hurting and struggling. God, would you help us look beyond our well-designed lives to see the needs the way you see the needs? And God, would you give us such a faith this week that our hearts break for the needs of others around us and that you would step us out of our comfort zones this week to serve others in the name of Christ, to show the love of Christ to those who are hurting and in need around us. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning on this campus or watching from home, God, they've put their confidence in prayers they've prayed or things they've done, and it's not a saving faith that's transformed them, would you open their eyes that today before it's too late? God, our hearts can be so deceptive, and James has warned us that we can deceive ourselves. Lord, if there's anyone watching this morning who thinks they're okay with you, but they're really not, Lord, in your grace and your mercy and your love for them, would you show them that? before it's too late, so they can run to you in true faith, a true faith that says, God, be my Savior and my Lord. Change me. Come, I want to follow you. Would you be doing that in their hearts this morning? Lord, in particular, I want to pray for the kids of Gateway. Lord, we know there's so many kids in this church family who are young and have heard the truth of the gospel over and over again. They've seen the faith of their parents. They've seen the fruit in their parents' lives, but they've yet to believe. And Lord, I pray even today, you'd be stirring their hearts to ask questions of their parents about the gospel and what it means to believe, and that you would be giving to the parents of Gateway much grace upon grace to be ready to give an answer of the hope they have in them. And I pray this afternoon, this evening, will be full of spiritual conversations in the homes of the people of Gateway. As we talk about faith with our kids, we talk about faith with one another, we talk about faith with our friends. And you would challenge us to live out this week the faith that you've given to us. And we give you all the praise for it, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join us and stand as we sing our closing song this morning?
Almighty God, we are so thankful for your incredible love for us. Lord Jesus, you went to that cross willingly, embraced the suffering to take the debt, to take the punishment that we deserve. Lord, I pray that this today and this week that we would treasure that. We would think often about the cross. Or we can get so distracted with everything that we see in the news and happening all around us that we can lose sight of the wonders of you, God, on your throne, ruling and reigning sovereignly. And Lord Jesus, you taking our place. I do pray this week we'd experience that newness of life you've purchased for us. That our salvation wouldn't just be something intellectual, something just that we believe in the past so that we can go to heaven. But God, it would be real today, be real each day this week. So give us grace upon grace to keep our eyes on you this week, no matter what's happening around us, so that we can walk in the joy of walking with you, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family, and have a great afternoon. Thank you.